Welcome to the Fully Disclosed Podcast. I'm Kim Harrison. Like you, my roles are multifaceted. Wife, mom, granny, Bible teacher, and writer. But I'm convinced the best thing of all is simply belonging to Jesus. And the greatest thrills are discovering Him at every turn. After all, He promises that those who ask receive, they that seek find, and to those who knock the door will be opened. Everything fully disclosed. For in him we have everything God is and everything man is intended to be. The earliest version of the game we know today as chess can be traced back to the 6th century AD. Like its present-day counterpart, it featured specific rules for specific game pieces, outlining how they were to move around the board and a single king piece whose fate in the game would determine the winner. The word chess is derived from the Persian word shah, meaning king, and from shamat, meaning checkmate. Literally, the king is helpless. Over the millennia and a half since its earliest form, chess has been used for many things, such as a tool for military strategy and as a metaphor for human pursuits. In its purest form, it is simply a strategic game, though a highly competitive one internationally. The word chess in modern terms also implies the presence of superior intelligence, even genius. You've likely heard the turn of phrase, this person is playing chess while their opponent is playing checkers, suggesting one player possesses such a high level of strategic thought that the two are competing on different levels altogether. I hear that metaphor a lot in a variety of scenarios, but in due course, such pride risks embarrassment too especially for the accomplished player who finds himself on the loser's side of the board simply because he was still playing chess when the game was actually checkers. Playing the game at hand is, no doubt, the best formula for success. Luke 20.20 says, So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. As Jesus' public ministry increased, so did his reputation and fame. Mixed in among his followers were the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Herodians, those religious and political leaders, always suspicious, always plotting, bothersome little briars within the sandal of God, yet nothing could sidestep him from his purpose and call. This calculating group of educated and prominent leaders disagreed with each other on all kinds of issues, but managed to unite in their opposition to Jesus. Surely they could pool their resources together to checkmate this carpenter from Nazareth. They envisioned a coming Messiah who would be like a combination of court and king on the chessboard. First, like the court, he would be as brutal conquering assailants, decimating the enemies of Israel, and after restoring her to glory, would reign as king. They wanted a Messiah who, as knight, bishop, and rook, would clear the way in the middle of the board. But Jesus' ministry was more like the strategy of moving the edge pawn, not as a way of condemning the move of the person on the other side of the board, but to gently say, this game will not be played as you imagine. Of course, chess proves a weak metaphor for the work of Christ, because he didn't come to play games but to accomplish the Father's will. And the religious and political leaders were not seeking a win. They sought to take his life, not realizing that his blood was the ultimate checkmate for his foe and theirs, the enemy, the prince of darkness. The motives of his opponents were obvious. They hung on his every word, not to seek truth, but through a series of thinly veiled gotcha questions sought to catch him contradicting the law. The Lord's response was never patronizing, never cynical, never suspicious. 
He simply answered their questions. In fact, through his answers, he redeemed their questions, making them relevant for all time and providing us with practical application today. Whatever their intent, I'm glad they asked, because you and I are granted some of the most profound truths from the lips of our Lord. Perhaps most important was his answer to this question. What commandment is the foremost of all? He answered with the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, and here he recites it in Mark 12, 29 and 30. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Most of his audience would have been able to mouth the words as he said them. Every Jew was mandated to know it, wear it, recite it, and live by it. The Shema, the greatest commandment then and the greatest commandment now, for Jesus has affirmed it as so. I imagine that as you listen today, you might be reciting in your mind the second commandment from memory, just as every Jew was able to recite the Shema. We are going to take a look at that second commandment in a few minutes, but first things first. When Jesus singled out the Shema as the greatest commandment, to love God with the whole being, heart, soul, mind, and strength, not only was he revealing something about the law, he was revealing something about himself too. What motivated all of his work? Was it to fulfill prophecy? Was it to fulfill the law? He accomplished both, but these were not the overarching motives behind all of his words and actions. The motive behind all that he said and all that he did was his love for the Father, a fully enveloping love, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because of his single-hearted and single-minded love for the Father, he fulfilled all messianic prophecy. Likewise, he fulfilled the entire Mosaic law. Obeying the law and fulfilling prophecy was the inevitable result of Jesus loving the Father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He was also clear in declaring what his motive was not. In John 5.41, he said, I do not receive glory from men. And in the first part of John 8.50, he says, I do not seek my glory. Jesus reveals that to obey the first commandment, thereby obeying them all, he determined to have one loyalty and to set aside all the rest. In seeking God's glory, he rejects the glory of men. In seeking the Father's glory, he sets aside for a time his own. In Philippians 2, 6, and 7, Paul describes this as Jesus emptying himself. He writes, Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Just before he was delivered up to be crucified, Jesus prayed to the Father in that glorious high priestly prayer recorded in John 17. He said in verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, as modeled by Jesus himself, seeks the glory of the Father and rejects the glory of self and the glory of men. Paul also indicates that seeking self-glory prohibits our loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He writes in Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 5.26, he writes, Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. And allow me to share the J.B. Phillips paraphrase of Galatians 5.26. Let us not be ambitious for our own reputations, for that only means making each other jealous. 
In Philippians 3, Paul talks about his own esteemed bona fides and reputation before encountering Jesus on the road to Damascus. We learn he was from the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee, blameless in keeping the law. Glory among his peers, he had plenty of it. Renowned among his countrymen, absolutely. And what value did all of that have for him after his conversion? Well, he himself described it in Philippians 3.8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Loving Christ, gaining Christ, became the all-consuming focus of his life, heart, soul, mind, and strength. All else he cast to the dung heap. <laughs> yes, that's the literal translation of Philippians 3.8. In John 14.31, Jesus says, But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded. Wow! Not only does loving God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength require undivided loyalty, it requires total surrender and obedience. Jesus loved the Father with heart, soul, mind, and strength by obeying everything the Father told him to do. Let me ask you something. Can you remember stringing 10 minutes of your life together where you could say, I did exactly what the Father told me to do, heart, soul, mind, and strength? I think humility restrains us from answering in the way that we wish to be true, in the way that we hope is true. I may have loved him in a given situation outwardly with all my strength, but did I withhold any of the hidden places within my heart and soul? Was my mind fully surrendered to him in purity too? Wow, tall order. But Jesus fulfilled the first commandment perfectly every moment he walked on earth. Romans 15.3 says, For even Christ did not please himself. Jesus declares in John 4.34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The will of the Father was the air he breathed, the bread he ate. It was the purpose behind not only all that he did, but all that he said. In John 12, 49 and 50, we read, For I did not speak on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Stunning. Imagine speaking only the things the Father tells you to say, remaining silent when he tells you not to speak. This is the oneness we have between God the Father and God the Son, complete surrender of the Son to whatever the Father instructs, and the carrying out of the greatest commandment, loving the Father with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the model that Jesus gives to us to live out. John, especially in his writings, connects our obedience with our love for God. 1 John 2, 5, and 6, But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. The psalmist says it like this in Psalm 119, 2. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. Keeping the greatest commandment requires undivided loyalty and total obedience to the will of the Father. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy. 
I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. The holiness of God is understood not only in his moral perfection, his complete divine perfection, but also in his otherness, that is everything that makes him God and not man. His love is not simply a better love than man's love. It is something other than man's love. His righteousness is not merely better than man's righteousness. It is something above man's righteousness, something other than man's righteousness. This is true regarding every divine attribute. The holiness of God reveals the otherness of God. 1 Timothy 6.16 says that he alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. Jesus, in fulfilling the greatest commandment of loving the Father heart, soul, mind, and strength, of doing everything the Father told him to do, and speaking only the things the Father told him to say, provides a tangible picture of what living out the holy life looks like. We now know that living a holy life will not be attained by checking the boxes of the law or checking boxes of the principles lined out in the New Testament epistles. It goes much deeper than that. In pleasing the Father, loving Him, obeying Him, involving the whole person, heart, soul, mind, and strength, As we pursue a wholly devoted love for the Father, we will find the principles of sanctified living in both the Old Testament and New, the natural overflow in our lives. Now, this will not happen by pulling up the bootstraps of our hearts and applying all of the self-determination we can muster into loving Him in this way. Instead, it begins by admitting something. Jesus says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I access his power to do it by admitting that without him, I can't. Galatians 3, 3 says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? We cannot love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength in our own flesh. We need Christ to do it in us. A continuous abiding in him, admitting over and over, I admit that without you, I can do nothing. This is the life of faith, trusting our Lord for our sanctification in the same way we trusted him for our justification when he saved us from our sins. It is all his doing, not as a result of works that no one should boast. In loving him, we seek to please him. In loving him, we find the resources to love others, which brings us to that second commandment. In Mark 12:31, Jesus says, The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus lifts this commandment out of the obscurity of the sundry laws. Among them were laws describing things like the limitations of planting seed varieties in a field to the way a beard may be trimmed. The sundry laws were important and clarifying in applying the Ten Commandments. And right in the middle of these is the one that Jesus affirms as the second greatest commandment, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus for all time links this commandment to the greatest commandment. The order in which these two commandments are mentioned by Jesus is important. We do not fulfill the second until we obey the first. Micah 6, 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. We will not do justice and love kindness until we walk humbly with our God. The source of the second commandment is the first. 
only Jesus can lift the second commandment out of the obscurity of my heart as it is fully surrendered to him, heart, soul, mind, and strength. I think our tendency is to skip the first to get to the second, maybe because it seems more within our grasp to apply it to our lives. But we will not embrace the second commandment until we embrace the first, and both require coming to the end of ourselves and admitting that without him, we can do nothing. John helps us take a sort of internal inventory. He writes in 1 John three seventeen and 18, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. 1 John four twenty and 21, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. We understand why the two greatest commandments are placed side by side. The second is the overflow fruit of the first. 1 Corinthians 13 is famously known as the love chapter and also reveals that the second commandment completely falls short without embracing the first. Listen to this from verse 3. And if I give my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. We can meet the needs of others and even lay down our lives for them, but without love, his love, it profits us nothing. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 characterizes a love for others that is rooted first in the love for God. It says, Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Wow. No matter how many times we may read or hear these verses, we need to hear them again and again. Thanks be to Jesus and the cross for allowing us to not only fathom such divine love, but also to participate in it through our love for each other. John 13, 34 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. In his private meetings with the disciples on the eve of his death, Jesus raises the bar even further. He built on the teaching of the second commandment by sanctioning a new one. The point of reference for loving people from now on was to be something other than self-love. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. In John fifteen twelve, he reiterates it again. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Their understanding and experience of his love for them was forever to be the point of reference for how they and every believer going forward is to love others and not a person's love of self. Here's why. As we mentioned earlier, to accomplish such a love, to live it out, will require something beyond ourselves. Take, for instance, Jesus' words in Luke 6.35. But love your enemies, and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Jesus expands love's reach still more. Not only am I to love my neighbor as Christ has loved me, 
but I am also to include my enemy in love's mandate. Verse 32 clarifies this new pattern of love. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Jesus' words here confirm two things. First of all, that those outside of Christ have the capacity to love others. Secondly, he warns that the love of the natural man can only extend so far. The act of love that identifies the redeemed, a love uniquely marked by Christ, a love that goes beyond the natural capacity, will overflow as readily to those who seemingly do not deserve love at all as to those deemed most worthy. In light of this, Luke 14.26 records a discourse between Jesus and a large crowd of followers that at first reads rather baffling. The one who spoke of the significance of loving others also said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now follow this because at first the reader may be taken aback. Troubled by Jesus' words, perceiving his teachings as contradictory, and thereby closing the Bible and rejecting him altogether. But a deeper look and understanding of the one who said it reveals that these verses hold the key to increasing love's capacity for others, even though he speaks of hating those we are most inclined to love. For example, those in my life who Jesus references are those with whom I most easily let down my guard. If anyone sees the full picture of who I am, it is these people. They know me at my worst. I wish I could say that the essence of my core is exposed when I am putting my best face forward, when I am conscious of watchful eyes. But if I am honest, I must admit the truth. I am a wretch. If anyone has seen that firsthand, if anyone has an excuse to walk away from me, it is those who are related to me by blood or vow. I am a sinner. I have failed them all. But if their commitment is to Christ, if their love for him exceeds their love for me to the extent that by comparison it can be described as hate, then they are bound by their commitment to him, to Christ, to remain committed to me. When I am not loving those closest to me, those described here in Luke fourteen twenty six in a manner most worthy of the gospel, it is a red flag that I am not loving Jesus to the extent that he says must mark every disciple. So, a love that Jesus characterizes as hate, by contrast to love for him, will reveal itself as a love anchored so deep and a resource so vast that it will mirror the descriptive love recorded in 1 Corinthians 13, and those closest to me will be the ones most likely on the receiving end. Dear siblings in Christ, my friends listening today, Though we may have the capacity to love others as we love ourselves, we are naive if by sheer determination we think we are capable of loving as Christ loves us. Only he can lift such love from the obscurity of the heart, a heart the Bible describes at its core as deceptive and desperately sick. And this brings us full circle, does it not? The only hope I have for loving others, as Christ has loved me, is to know, experience, and apply the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. We have all kinds of notions and theories of what love looks like when the second commandment is applied. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Non-believers are quick to add their opinions here, describing what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. 
But Jesus is most interested in the love that goes beyond the human comprehension and capacity. Let me ask you, my friend, in spite of hearing the first commandment over and over, in spite of being able to mouth the word yourself along with hearing it quoted, do you know what it means to love God with all your heart? When is the mind totally surrendered to the love of God? And what about the soul? How is it uniquely crafted to carry out the greatest commandment? Strength? When does your love for God empower your actions beyond just the doing of all the right things into something that can only be explained by Christ's presence in your life? Does living out such an all-encompassing love seem beyond your grasp? Well, good. It's supposed to, because it is beyond our grasp. Only one person in the whole of human history ever got it right. Only one person ever fulfilled the greatest commandment, and he fulfilled it perfectly. Jesus Christ, God the Son. Jesus is the fulfillment of the greatest commandment. He is the fulfillment of the law. And it is only when I admit that I do not and cannot love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength that I gain access to the one who does. Abiding in him begins by admitting that without him I can do nothing. Loving the Lord as he requires begins by admitting that without Christ's present help in the person of the Holy Spirit, I cannot and will not love him at all. This mystery is great, but admitting our helplessness gives us access to our helper as he provides a supernatural capacity and ability to love others as Christ has loved us. It is possible, but only in him and through him. Could it be that the turmoil in our nation in our churches, in the very hearts of individuals, springs from the lack of understanding and application of the greatest commandment? Every prophecy of the Old Testament was given because his nation failed here. Today's tendency is to ignore the greatest commandment and skip to the second. This is true even within our congregations. We like the idea of the more tangible, relatable second commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We will not attain to the second without applying the first. We cannot practice the new commandment without grasping the first. Have you invested time in learning what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Church leaders and teachers, have we begun to scratch the surface of the first commandment before immediately jumping to the second? Jesus says our lives will be marked by love. In John thirteen thirty five, he says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Emptying myself of self-love is the only way to be filled with his. My sick and deceitful heart is desperate to cling to the notion that love for others is rooted in self-love. You cannot love others until you love yourself. What a silly, self-absorbed kind of notion. The light of his presence exposes the lie and simultaneously reveals the truth. If all of humanity were to form its basis of love on the way this podcaster loves herself, well, frankly, it's such a foolish notion, I'd rather not go there, and neither would you. My self-love is based on my fickled character. God's love is based on his perfect nature, for his essence is love. His love for me has nothing to do with whether or not I deserve it. I don't. He is love, and he has an abundant supply to impart. Jesus invites us to relinquish heart, soul, mind, and strength to his ownership, replacing self-love with himself, the source of love. Tapping into love at its fountainhead will overflow into the heart, soul, mind, and strength of my whole being, 
and outward toward love for others, that they too may come to him and be filled. Thank you for all your kind words and for joining me here. I love sharing this time with you. First time listeners, please know you are welcome to subscribe if you wish. Consider this your invitation to return next week. I'll be here. And in the meantime, may we continue each day to learn to love him more.